Our passage this morning is Philippians chapter 4, verse 2 and verse 3. So last week we looked at Philippians 4.1, single verse. This morning we're covering twice as much ground, two verses, so we're going to really, really pick up the pace. Philippians 4, verse 2 and verse 3. You can find some notes in your bulletin. We're going to read the passage in just a minute, but before we read it, it's helpful uh, because we've been several weeks in the book of Philippians. Some of you have been with us every week. Some of you haven't. Some of you have missed a few weeks. It's helpful in this passage just to review a few of the major players in this book, some of the characters, so that we know who everybody is and we know exactly what's going on here. And I want to start with a guy, a character, who's not even mentioned in our particular passage this morning. I want to start with Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was a member of the church in Philippi. First, he was sent by the church with an offering for Paul. So they knew that Paul was in prison. They took this offering up. They sent it. Of all the people they could have sent, they said, we trust Epaphroditus to take this sack of money, this bag of money, this box of money, whatever it was, and to carry it all the way, 800 miles to Rome, and to give it to Paul. So the church sent him with this offering for Paul, and then he was sent by Paul with the letter that Paul wrote that we're studying on Sunday mornings. We call it the book of Philippians. It was originally a letter written from Paul to this church. So this is a guy who's involved in this church. He carries this offering, and then he brings this letter back to the church. And I bring him up, even though he's not mentioned in this passage, to say in a few verses in Philippians 4, we read about Euodia and Syntyche. These two women are going to be the heart of what we're talking about this morning. My guess is that it was Epaphroditus who told Paul what was going on between Euodia and Syntyche. So he's taking this offering. He gets all the way to Rome with it. He gives it to Paul. They start to catch up. Paul wants to know all about the church. Tell me what's going on. What are you studying? What are you preaching on? How's the worship? How's the the unity? How's everything going? And in the course of conversation... Epaphroditus brings up Euodia and Syntyche and this disagreement that was going on between the two of them. And I want you to understand, I don't think it was like a gossip thing when Epaphroditus starts to tell Paul what's going on between these two women. You can go back earlier in the book and you can read about Epaphroditus' character. Paul lays it out as he's sending him back to the church and he's saying, this is a trusted man, a believer in the Lord. You trust him with this offering for me. I trust him to carry this letter back. He's a man of integrity and he loves the Lord and he loves this church. So it's not like a a gossip thing or a slander thing. It's just Paul and Epaphroditus catching up about what was going on in the church. And Paul heard about these two ladies, I think from Epaphroditus, which brings us to the two women in the passage, Euodia and Syntyche, members of the church in Philippi. They were believers We know that they labored alongside Paul. We read that in the passage. And we know that they were involved in some sort of personal conflict. Now, this is fascinating to me. Because almost every Bible scholar I can ever think that I've read about one of Paul's letters talks about the fact that when Paul wrote these letters to the different churches, they would have received the letter. They would have waited for the corporate gathering to come together, meaning they wait for big church. And then the pastor or maybe someone like Epaphroditus would stand up in front of everyone and read the letter to the congregation. This is what Paul says to us, this church that he started. 
So you can imagine if your name is Euodia and Syntyche, and you're sitting in big church, and somebody stands up to start reading this letter, and all the way through it, this idea of unity keeps coming up. Unity, unity, unity. And you know that you are not on the same page with this woman, with this other person. And all the way through this reading, you're probably squirming a little bit. You're a little bit uncomfortable. You're thinking, oh man, he's probably talking about me. I'm just glad he didn't say my name. At least he didn't call me out. But I know he's talking to me. I know he's, maybe you're feeling conviction. Maybe you're feeling guilt. Maybe you're feeling unease. I don't know. But then it comes down to the end of this letter and Paul just flat out calls them by name. And I always wondered, like the person reading the letter, did they hesitate at this point? Or did they just let it rip? Did they look at these two women in the congregation when they read it? Euodia and Syntyche. If it's not clear enough, we're talking about you. But he just calls them out. I don't know if you've ever been called out in big church, but it kind of makes your heart skip a beat, right? Doesn't matter if it's for something good or bad. When, when your name gets tossed out from the platform, you just sort of think, oh my goodness, what I do? And these ladies know what they've done because they've been listening to this letter read, unity, unity, unity. It keeps coming up, and Paul names them by name. We know that they were believers. We're going to come back to this because Paul says their names are written in the book of life. We'll come back to that idea in a minute. We know that they worked alongside Paul. He calls them co-laborers or co-workers here in this passage. And again, we know that they had some sort of personal conflict. Bible scholars speculate. Some of them say, look, these were probably two women who were with Lydia. You remember when Paul went to Philippi for the very first time and there's a group of women out praying by the river outside of town. Some say these were probably two women who were part of that prayer meeting and they heard the gospel the very first day that Paul rolled into town. We don't know that for certain. They could have been part of Lydia's group or they could just be two ladies that as the church started to grow and they started to share the gospel in their community, heard the good news about Jesus, and we do know that they had trusted in Jesus, that they were believers. One more character to mention. This is a character not exactly mentioned by name and it's led to all sort of speculation. There's all sort of debate about the identity of the person Paul calls quote unquote true companion. True companion. And he he mentions this person towards the beginning of verse three. True companion. Some scholars say that this is Paul referring to his wife. That word companion could be used in Greek to refer to a spouse. So some say this is Paul's wife. I don't think that's likely at all. Many scholars not, are not even certain that Paul had a wife, don't think that he had a wife, and the form of the word he uses here in Greek is a masculine form. So if he's talking about his wife, he could have used the feminine form, he uses the masculine form. I don't think that he was talking about his wife. Some people think it was Timothy. Some people think that it was Luke. Some people think that it was Epaphroditus, the guy who's carrying this letter. And that's a little bit awkward for Paul to write to Epaphroditus when they're both there together in Rome and then Paul hands him the letter. But it could have been Epaphroditus. Several scholars I read think that it was Silas. You may remember that when Paul first went to Philippi, it was Paul and Silas that were locked up in the prison singing hymns late into the night. And so some people say it was Silas. A handful of scholars say it was the pastor of the church. And I even read a few comment- uh, commentaries that said it's just a reference to the whole church. It's not necessarily talking about one individual. It's just talking about the whole church together. But this is what we do know. There's this little squabble between Euodia and Syntyche. And Paul is enlisting the help of someone or someone's else 
to help with the problem, and he calls them his true companion. The big idea is really simple. This is not a complicated passage. Paul urged Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. And we're going to talk about what that means this morning. At this point, let me just say this. Agreeing in the Lord. That's way more than just a ceasefire. Right? It's more than looking at your kids when your kids are acting like knuckleheads and you say, knock it off. Knock it off means quit fighting. Paul is not just saying to these women, quit fighting. He's saying, you need to quit fighting, but you also need to agree in the Lord. Right? There's another step in there. Not just don't be hateful to each other. Not just Euodia, you sit in this section. Syntyche, you sit in this section. You just stay away from each other. You're going to use this exit. You're going to use that exit. Your paths don't have to cross. You go to this Sunday school class. You go to this class. You just keep your distance from each other. This is, you two people are part of the same church family and you need to get on the same page and agree in the Lord. And we're going to come back to that idea and talk about what that means. So look at the passage. We're just going to read it, and then we'll pray together. Philippians 4, verse 2 and 3. The Word of God says this. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Let's pray. Father, we look at this very short passage. We come to a, a couple of verses that seem like a, a discussion, a debate, an issue, a problem that has nothing to do with us. But Father, we believe that your word is living and that it's active. We believe that it's breathed out by you, that it's useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness, that we may be equipped for every good work. And so this morning we pray that your word would do its work in our lives and in our hearts, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Let's start with this question. Why was church unity so important to Paul? Why was it so important that he was willing to step into the middle of a fight between two women and to tell them to agree? You may be thinking, well, he is 800 miles away. So it's not like he was there in the church and he's looking at these two women and they're all physically there present and he's telling them to agree. He had an 800-mile buffer between these two ladies who were fighting together. And maybe that gave him the confidence that he needed to say to these women, you need to agree. And you understand it could have easily been two men, but in this situation, it's two women. And Paul just sort of sticks his nose right in the middle of it. Now, I'll be honest with you. If somebody did this in church today, many of us, if not most of us, would be inclined to bow up and say, you have gone from preaching to meddling, Paul. You are up in my business, and you don't need to be up in my business. Look, you get up there, you lead the Bible study, you write the letters, you tell Epaphroditus how to teach, all that stuff's great. But when you start telling me how to live my life, you've sort of crossed a line. 
In our culture, we don't just sort of walk around looking for situations to stick our nose in that don't really involve us. That's exactly what Paul's done in this situation. It doesn't directly involve him in the sense that he's not even there with them at the church. And yet he hears this report about these two women who can't really agree. There's some sort of conflict. And Paul has the, what we would probably call the audacity to stick his nose right in the middle of it and to say, listen, you and you, you need to knock it off and you need to agree in the Lord. Why was church unity so important to Paul that he just inserts himself into the middle of a conflict that he originally had nothing to do with? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, Jesus wants his people to experience a Trinitarian-like unity for the sake of the mission. Jesus wants that, and because Jesus wants it, Paul wants it. A Trinitarian-like union, meaning there's this unity between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And when Jesus prays for his people in John 17, one of the last prayers he ever prayed on this earth, he's praying that we, the church, would experience the same kind of unity that he has with the Father, not just because it would be nice to experience, but so that we can fulfill the mission that he was going to give us. So look at John 17. I'll put this passage up on the screen. This is the night before the crucifixion. They just celebrated the the Last Supper, the Passover. They're getting ready to walk out to Gethsemane. And Jesus says this as he's praying. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Meaning, I'm not only praying for the guys in the room, but I'm also praying for all the people that are going to believe because of their preaching and their teaching. And the prayer is that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Just like these members of the Trinity have this unity. He's praying that we would have that same kind of unity. That we may be in us. That they may be in us. So that the world may believe that you sent me. Look, Jesus' time is short. And he's thinking about really important things. And one of the things that he verbalizes in prayer is, to the Father, I pray that those who would come to faith because of the preaching of the men in this room throughout all the years and the centuries, I pray that they would experience a unity that's reflective of the unity that exists between Father, Son, and Spirit so that the world will know the truth about me. That the world will believe the truth about me. Some of you have experiences in churches that were not unified. You could tell stories. Some of the stories would be funny stories. Most of the stories would honestly be tragic stories. And you know as well as I do that when a church is not unified, its witness is hindered. The mission is hindered. People begin to lose sight of what it means to be focused on making disciples of all the nations. And they begin to just think about this division that's festering in the church. People lose sight of what it means to go to all the ends of the earth, beginning in Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, all the way to the ends, to find people, to tell them about Jesus, and they just begin to sort of turn inward on themselves. You've heard stories about churches in this community. And you've heard those stories about things going on between members or between staff members or between pastors and the fighting. And you've said to yourself, man, I would never go to a church like that. 
I would never want to be a part of something like that. All of these things that you've thought and experienced and felt are reflective of this fact that when we are not unified, we will not make disciples. And the mission is make disciples. Make sure that everyone believes that the Father sent the Son to save a people for himself. That's the mission. And if we're going to do that, we have to be on the same page. So why is it so important for Paul that these two ladies get on the same page? It may seem like a small issue. Maybe it wasn't a big, huge fight or a big, dramatic thing. But he knows if you don't fix this, you're not going to be worth anything in making disciples. You're not going to advance the ball down the field at all. Your witness is going to be hindered. No one in Philippi is going to want to be a part of fighting and bitterness and jealousy and rivalry. You two ladies have got to agree in the Lord for the sake of the mission. There's another reason it mattered to Paul. Second reason is this. Being like Jesus involves humility that results in unity. And ultimately, he wanted them to be like Jesus. He wanted the people in Philippi to be Christ-like, to be conformed into his image. And he knows that if you become more and more like Jesus, you're going to be humble people. And when you're humble people, you're going to have unity in your church. We've already seen this in the book of Philippians. I'm going to put it on the screen or you can flip back to chapter 2. But look what Paul says, Philippians 2, verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love and being a full accord of one mind. That's unity. You need unity. Verse 3, how do you get it? Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's a great picture of humility. Consider other people as more important than you. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interests of others. That's what a humble person does. They don't look to their own interests, but they think about the interests of others. They count other people as more significant than them. Why would we do all of that? Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Be more and more and more like Jesus. And when you're more and more like Jesus, you become a humble person. And when you become a humble person, you find unity in your church. Look, it's worth pointing out before we move on in Philippians 4 that what we do here at our church is designed and intended and prayerfully put together that you might be more like Jesus. We don't get together on Sunday morning and plan Awana programs on Wednesday nights and go on mission trips. We don't do all of these things that we do just so you can have like a nice social club to be a part of in Odessa. We don't meet together on Sunday mornings just so that you can put an appearance in at church and then feel like you've been a good person for the rest of the week and you've sort of done your due with God. We don't do what we do so that you get entertained or you get your ears tickled. Everything that we're doing, we're trying to put together, we're trying to be intentional, we're trying to be strategic that you and that I that all of us might be more and more and more like Christ. And what Paul is saying to these ladies in the context of Philippians is, if you will pursue Christ-likeness, you will be humble people. Just like Jesus was humble. Not putting his own interest first, but putting your interest first. By humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross... And when you and I get that kind of humility in our lives, Christ-like humility, we're not going to have to worry about unity. You don't even have to think twice about it. 
So why did it matter to Paul? He wanted them to be like Christ, and he knew that that meant they needed to be humble and united. Next question is this. What does it exactly mean to agree in the Lord? What does it mean to agree in the Lord? I think the best way I can summarize it is to say that we find our unity in the gospel. And I'm just going to remind you of the gospel points that we talk about over and over and over again. It means we agree about God, we agree about sin, we agree about Jesus, and we agree about repentance. We find our agreement and our unity on those issues. And I list all four of them out because it's tempting for me to say, let's find our unity in the gospel. And then for us to kick back and say, yeah, we all believe Jesus died for us. But when we share the gospel on Sunday morning in this room or in your Sunday school classes or on mission trips, we don't just walk up to people and say, Jesus died for your sins. We start off talking about who God is. We have to agree about that. The Bible says that he's holy. And that's the foundation that we have to start on if we're going to agree together, if we're going to be of one mind. Listen, one of the things when we say that God is holy, one of the things that we mean is that God and God alone has the right to tell us how to live. If you and I don't agree about that, we're never going to have any kind of real unity. If you just sort of feel like, well, that's the preacher's thing. The preacher's just telling me what he thinks. This, my parents taught me this. That's just sort of what they think. But this is what I think. And it's just up to whatever anyone thinks, you're not going to find unity. But you find unity when you slow down and you say, wait a minute. The Bible says that God is holy. And one of the things that means for us is that he has the right to tell us what to do and not to do. It's his prerogative. We've got to agree on that. We've also got to agree about sin. And one of the things that we have to agree with is that my sin, your sin, think about it in personal terms, is a problem for the relationships in my life. There's an awful lot of people who understand that sin hurts relationships. They just think it's someone else's sin. Like spouses sometimes. Sometimes spouses come in and visit with me. And I'm happy to visit with them. I love visiting with them, asking them questions. And a lot of the times what I basically hear, no one is ever like so bold to just say this out loud. But a lot of times what I hear from spouses who are struggling, you know, with marriage issues is if my spouse would just fill in the blank, everything would be better. To which I say, so your spouse is 100% of the problem, right? It's, it's his fault. It's all her fault. They just are the ones that need to change. And what's really, not really ha-ha funny, but sad funny, is that if you turn to the other person sitting in the room, they're pretty quick to turn over and to say, now wait a minute, I kind of feel like if you would just fill in the blank, all our problems would be better. So you got two people in a relationship, and they both think the other person is the problem. That doesn't work. It doesn't work in marriage. It doesn't work in friendships, on a camaraderie level, and it certainly doesn't work on a church level. If you walk around this church and your experience here at Emmanuel is, man, this would be such a better place if that person would just change. This would be such a better place if that person would just go somewhere else. This would be such a a better place if that person would just stop doing that or saying that. What you're saying is, 
all these people have a sin problem and they're just messing up my perfect church experience. And what Paul is saying here is we've got to find some unity in the gospel, agreeing in the Lord. That means we agree that God alone has the right to tell us how to live. And that means we agree that our sin is harmful and hurtful to relationships. You've got to understand that. You've also got to agree about Jesus. You've got to believe and agree with somebody that Jesus is the only hope that we have for forgiveness. That his death on the cross paid the penalty for our sin. And you've got to agree about repentance. Of course Jesus is calling us to believe in him. There's hundreds of verses that talk about that in the scriptures. But he's also calling us to change. To change our mind about sin and to turn away from it. Listen to me. If you find a person and you agree on those issues, you're going to have unity. You may not live in the same neighborhood. You maybe didn't go to the same high schools. You may not vote for the same political party. You may not like the same restaurants. You may not be in the same stage of life. But I promise you, if you get on the same page on those four issues with another person, you're going to have unity with them. And Paul does not just say to these ladies, look, knock it off and get along. He says, you, I'm urging you, both of you, Euodia, I'm urging you. Syntyche, I'm urging you. Agree in the Lord. That means agreeing in the gospel about God and about sin and about Jesus and about repentance. Why did he want other people to get involved? Why not just say to these ladies, look, y'all need to figure this out. Agree in the Lord and leave it. Why does he piggyback in verse 3 and talk about true companion? I'm asking you to help these women. Why involve other people? Simply, I think that Paul understood that our walk with God was a community project, meaning it's not something you can do alone. Your relationship with God, your personal individual relationship with God is something you can't do on your own. You need other people to walk with you in it, or you could say it's a community project. How many of you remember, I'm just going to ask you to date yourself a little bit. How many of you remember watching the original television show, The Lone Ranger on TV? Not reruns, but like when it really came out. A few of you. Reruns, hands up. You watch the reruns. How many of you seen the movie? New movie, Johnny Depp movie. I've tried to watch the movie like five times and I, I can't get past like 10 minutes into it. I just, I'm bored and I can't watch it. The premise of the, the TV show and the movie is pretty simple. You've got a patrol of Texas Rangers. They get ambushed, they get massacred, and one guy lives. Hence the name, The Lone Ranger. And this guy sort of goes off on his own and he's going to get the bad guys and he's going to travel throughout the West and he's going to bring justice to the oppressed and the poor and the afflicted and all that stuff. And in the TV show and the movie, he's got a buddy, right? He's not all the way alone. He's got Tonto, his friend who comes to help him or rescue him. But the idea sort of follows with the name of the show. He's out there by himself, the Lone Ranger. There's an awful lot of Christians who are trying to be Lone Ranger Christians. They think, all I need to do is read my Bible. I'll go show up at church, of course. You go to church, everybody goes to church. But I can do this on my own. 
I can grow on my own. I can learn on my own. I can study on my own. I don't really need all of these other people involved in my life. To which I would say, what in the world are you going to do with all of the one another passages in the New Testament? You're just going to scratch them out? You're just going to pretend like they apply to that other person that's the big problem in your church? There's all these verses in the New Testament that use the phrase, one another. You can't do that as a Lone Ranger Christian. And some of you say, well, you know, I know I can't do it by myself. I've got, I've got a couple of particularly close friends that I can turn to and I can lean on. Well, the Lone Ranger had one friend. You need more than a friend. You need more than a couple of close friends. You need a church of people. You need people who are older than you and people who are younger than you, people who know more than you and who know less than you. You need a church family to grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. It is a community project. And I've given you some of these verses on your notes. We're not going to read them, but you can go look them up. I just gave you a few of the many, many dozens of passages that use this phrase, one another. You can't follow any of those commands. You can't do any of those things as a Lone Ranger Christian. You can only do them when you're walking in community with other people. Paul understands that. So he doesn't just say, look, you two ladies, figure it out. But he says, ladies, I'm urging you to agree in the Lord. And my true companion, I need you to come alongside them and to walk with them in this process and to help them. Last question is this. Why does it matter that these two ladies had their name written in the book of life? Like, of all the things Paul could have said, about these two ladies, all the ways he could have described them and their relationship and how he knew them. Why throw out this idea their names are written in the book of life? Put a few verses on the screen. I didn't have room to squeeze all these on your outline. You can take a picture of that if you want to, or you can try to jot a few down. These are just a few passages in the Bible that talk about a book with names in it. And the idea in the scriptures is pretty, pretty simple. It's in the Old Testament and the New. The Bible describes a book owned by God that has people's names in it. And this list of names or this book of names are God's people, the people who will receive eternal life. And sometimes people read that idea that there's a book and they get maybe a little bit too literal and they're like, so there's like an actual book? How big is it? How many pages does it have? It's got to be one big book. If you, could you go and visit it and turn the pages and is it alphabetical order? Is it date order? How does it work? Don't press the details too much. This is what you need to understand. The scripture is taking something that's very familiar to us, a book and a list of names in the ancient world, many of these cities would have lists of the citizens. Philippi probably had that, a registry or a list of all the people who belonged in that city. And the scripture is saying, look, just like you know who belongs in your city, God knows who belongs to him. There's no ambiguity here. There's a book. It's a book of life, and the names are written in this book. And of all the things Paul can say about Euodia and Syntyche, two ladies who are kind of having a hard time agreeing, he says, these two women have their names written in the book of life. It's a really important idea when you're thinking about two people that need to be reconciled to each other. Here's why it matters. Only those who have been reconciled to God can in turn be reconciled to each other. Only those reconciled to God 
can be truly reconciled with each other. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 5, the ministry of reconciliation. He talks about it in Ephesians 2, Jew and Gentile being brought together. And that's what he's saying here. If your name is written in this book, if you belong to God and he knows you as one of his people, that means you have been reconciled to him through the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you've been reconciled to God through the blood of Christ, you ought to be, you must be, you will be reconciled with his people. In Paul's mind, those two things go together. When you've been reconciled to God and your name is listed in this book, the obvious implication is that those who are in the book will be reconciled with each other. So you come to the end of it and you say, this is, this is one of the simplest passages in Philippians. Are there some things we're not sure about and who he's talking to and what the fight was about? Yeah, there's some things we don't know. Here's what we do know. Unity within a church really matters. It mattered enough for Paul to stick his nose in somebody else's business. And what he said to these two folks is, you need to find unity in the Lord. You need to agree in the Lord. You need to find that unity for the sake of the mission because your job as the church in Philippi is to make disciples and it's never going to happen if you're not in, in unity with each other. And you need to do it because I want you to be like Christ. That's the point, that you would be conformed more and more and more to his image. You can't do it alone. You can't become Christ-like by yourself. You need other people to walk with you in that process. And it's possible, and we have hope in that because we've been reconciled to God and now we ought to be reconciled to each other. Unity matters. So this morning I want you to bow and we're going to pray for ourselves. We're going to pray for our church that we would seek this kind of unity and that God would work it in our lives. Father, we're grateful for your grace and for your mercy. We're grateful for the blood of Jesus that cleanses us and washes us that gives us life when we're dead, that reconciles us to you. Father, and that gives us grounds and hope for reconciliation with each other. Father, I pray this morning, especially for our church, that we would be united, not in things that don't matter, not in secondary issues, but that we would be united in the gospel, that we believe what the Bible says about you in your holiness, and that we believe what the Bible says about us and our sin, that we look to Jesus and his burial, his death and his burial and his resurrection as the only hope that we have for life, that we trust in Jesus and we turn away from sin. Father, we pray that you would work that kind of unity in us. Father, and we pray that as we walk together, that you would make us more like Christ, You would fill us with your power and with your spirit that we might make disciples and that the world might know that you sent Jesus to rescue your people. Father, ultimately we pray that our church would be a place of unity for your honor and for your glory and for the good of your kingdom. Father, I pray for those in the room who need to agree in the Lord with someone else here. And I pray that they would seek that. I pray that they would seek forgiveness where it needs to be sought. Father, I pray that people would grant forgiveness where it needs to be granted.
pray that we would throw away anything that slows us down from the mission you've given us of making disciples. Father, and we pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.